Corinthians and we look at verses 12 through the end of the chapter, and we really need to see what Paul is saying here in two different levels, two different categories. The first level is Paul is going to explain a misunderstanding. The second level is Paul is going to open up a window to his soul and tell us why his ministry exists. It is to be helpers of their joy. We are helpers of your joy. So we're just going to work our way through these two different categories in this chapter, beginning of verse 12. This misunderstanding that Paul wants to explain, and then he tells us the reason why he changed his travel plans and how it relates to the last verse. He's a helper of their joy. First of all, we learn in 1 Corinthians 16 that Paul's plan initially was to pass by Corinth and not stop and go into Macedonia and to spend some time there. He would then come back to Corinth and he might abide and stay through winter, but he wanted them to carry him on his way to Jerusalem after a godly sort, which means in the ministry he was looking to them to help with his expenses going back to Judea. Paul decided, we learn in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in the 16th verse, he changed his travel plans and decided to stop in Corinth on the way to Macedonia and then come back again for a second benefit, a second blessing. In other words, Paul says, you're my joy and I trust in part I'm your joy, so we're going to come together and have fellowship and joy together. But when he came the first time and stopped off, it was a painful visit. There was such confrontation that when Paul left and went to Macedonia, he decided not to come a second time. It would not have been good for the church had he stopped. So he wrote a severe letter instead, which is called one of the lost letters. There are four that Paul wrote. Two we have, two are lost, which simply means God didn't want them included in the canon of Scripture. And then Paul now is being criticized for being a double-minded man. Paul, you're just a yes and no man. You're fickle. You're double-minded. So Paul now is going to make matters clear, first of all, beginning in verse 12, and then he wants to tell him the reason he spared them was to be a helper of their joy. So we'll see how these two come together. So first of all, how does Paul make matters clear? And how do you make matters clear when someone misunderstands you? We live in the day of disinformation. I think if I hear that word again, I may over and over. They say that's when someone spreads false facts intended to deceive. Well, here, people are spreading real facts about Paul. He did change his plans, but they're misinterpreting Paul's motives. So Paul wants to clear the matter. We should clear the matter when there's misunderstanding. So the first way he clears the matter is first clears his own conscience. Verse 12, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves, we have behaved ourselves, not only in the world, but more importantly, more abundantly to you. Paul clears his conscience. A testimony is a witness. 
A witness goes on the stand, and the witness is either going to accuse or excuse the alleged criminal. They're going to give testimony as to what they saw concerning the alleged criminal. The testimony might be used to accuse the criminal, or it may be used to excuse the criminal, let him off the hook. Now, what's your first response when you're misunderstood? Defensiveness, isn't it? I mean, even in our own relationships, family, marriage, the first response when misunderstood is the gut reaction of that inner person and is that flesh that wants to defend ourselves to the end. We're so good at it, we can justify ourselves being right even when we're wrong. We can turn it as an occasion to make the other person look wrong. Paul doesn't do that. Now, Paul is in the right. They are falsely accusing him. But the first thing a witness experiences on the witness stand is questions. So what does Paul first do? He questions himself. Did I do anything that was out of sync with God's Word? Was I angry in a sinful way? Were my words dishonoring to God? Is what they're saying about me really true? J.R. Respus, an old Baptist minister back in the 1800s, who was one of the editors of the Gospel Messenger, when he was accused, when he was misunderstood, he would often say, Perhaps it is so. I don't think he was acknowledging wrong. He's simply saying, I need to ask questions because it might be so or it might not be so. Now, how will you have a clear conscience? When you heed the voice of the conscience that God has put in every human being with the Christian, it's a regenerated conscience, it's a clean, good conscience whereby our conscience is giving us information based on the standard of God's Word as to our actions. You know that was wrong. Your conscience says, as it were. It convicts you. So Paul asked, when I, when I was changing my plans, was I being duplicit? Uh, duplicit? The conscience says, no, Paul, you are acting in accordance to a purpose that you've been consistent about. Now, what if Paul had asked the question of conscience and the conscience said, Paul, you know you were hiding something. You know you were not being genuine. Paul would have confessed and repented. The first step that we must do in a misunderstanding when we're accused, when we're misunderstood, is clear our own conscience. Ask questions of yourself instead of immediately defending yourself against the people that have misunderstood you. Maybe there's some elements of what they're saying that's right. Maybe there's some that's false. So rather than throwing it all out, ask questions of conscience. Is this true or is it not? And a conscience that's based on the highest standard of God's Word will consistently give you a voice, a conviction, an alarm system that says, Paul, you know this is not right. I'm not speaking that the conscience talks audibly, but it is going to accuse or else excuse your actions based on the highest perceived standard. Now, for the world, it's just the highest standard they know. But for the people of God, it must be built on the Word of God. Martin Luther, the diet of worms or worms, if you can't say it like I can, 
He asked questions of his own conscience. The 1521 papal bull accused him of 41 heresies. How do you stand with such a massive institution of Catholicism and kings and all these political people and you're alone in the room and they're saying, 41 heresies, do you recant? As a result of asking questions of conscience, he did admit to some things. I may have spoken harshly. I shouldn't have said it that way. But he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. Now, how could he stand against such a formidable foe? He asked questions, and the word of God came back and said, you're standing on the word of God. Stand firm. And he did. So Paul begins with a clear conscience and beloved When you want to make matters clear, the first thing you do is not lash out and defend against yourself and say they got it all wrong. Maybe they did. Maybe there's some parts you got wrong. So you first ask questions. Paul did that, and the testimony was clear that with simplicity and godly sincerity, he's been acting consistently among the church at Corinth. Simplicity means singleness of heart. So they're accusing Paul of being double-minded. Something's going on in the heart. He's not saying what really is there. He's deceiving us. Paul said, I'm single in heart. I'm a man of integrity based on a pure conscience, a clean conscience. He's acting with simplicity. Haplotase is the word. Colossians 3.22 concerning this simplicity. Paul would say, servants obey your masters in all things, not with eye service as men pleasers, but with singleness, same word, of heart, fearing God. And whatsoever you do, do it heartily, et cardia, out of the heart, as unto the Lord. Are you the kind of person that you're working real hard when the boss has his eyes on you? Then when she or he walks away, you pull out the iPhone. Maybe like you're doing right now. You start texting, or you look at the latest TikTok, or you start looking on Facebook. And then when you hear boss is coming, you stick the phone back in your pocket and you get to work like you've been working hard. That's not singleness, that's duplicit. Paul says that is not the life of a Christian. Rather, to fear God means to live with a singleness, a wholeness to God, because we understand out of the heart, God sees and He knows. So we're not just trying to please men. Yes, we want to please them so far as the Word of God allows. We live for the pleasure of God. So our work, whether the boss ever shows up or not, is unto the Lord. So Paul says there's first simplicity. I've been whole like this with you. My conscience is clear. And it's been with godly sincerity. The word here at the very root means sunlight tested. S-U-N-L-I-G-H-T. Years ago, in ancient times, fine pottery was very thin. And it was subjected to the process, often it could easily be cracked. Well, a pure, the word here means to be pure before God, sincerity. One that was pure, the person making the pottery would have to throw it away. But an impure person would use a kind of a wax to seal over the crack, glaze it, paint it. You could not tell. 
And then she hold it up to the light, the sunlight. And you could see the crack. And they used to put this part of this Greek word on the pottery, sunlight tested. With regard to Paul's conscience, he's clear in the matter because it's not just his, his own ideas. He is sunlight tested, S-O-N-L-I-G-H-T. He puts his conscience before the Word of God. He takes in the Word of God. And the Word of God then is helping him, his conscience bearing witness as to his actions. And so he asked the questions. The conscience came back clear. And the, the life that Paul is living before them is... Simplicity, godly sincerity, not by fleshly wisdom, that would be duplicit, but by the grace of God. There's the root. By the grace of God, Paul, not sinless, but Paul always tried to live with a clean and clear conscience, he would say in the book of Acts. We should too, beloved. So the first thing you do to make matters clear is not to defend yourself, it's to first ask the questions. And then Paul now is making a defense in the right way. Secondly, beginning in verse 13, he not only is going to clear his conscience, he's going to clear the relationship. Now look what he says next, verse 13. For we write none other things other than which you are reading, it's a present tense, and are acknowledging or understanding the word implies written and acknowledged can mean written or spoken. So, I'm only writing and preaching what you have been reading and you have understood me to be. And I trust, I hope, I expect shall be acknowledged or understood even to the end. And Paul could mean the end of his life, end of his ministry, or the end of this conflict. Now, if Paul expects them to understand what he's writing, the point is he's trying to clear up the misunderstanding. Isn't that important? When you're misunderstood, you say, well, that's their problem. They misunderstood me, so be it. Not Paul. He wants to clear the problem. So he initiates the action of writing the letter and he wants them to understand why he changed his travel plans. There is a good explanation. He is sure that once they hear the explanation, they will acknowledge it and understand he's not as these false apostles are claiming he is, a double-minded, a trickster, a huckster, a peddler. That's what these Johnny-come-lately Preachers were doing and criticizing Paul, they will see clearly and the relationship will be brought back together. Do you seek to clear up the relationship when someone misunderstands you in a relationship you have with them, in family or church? That's what God expects. You remember Jesus says this in Matthew 5. He would say, therefore... When you bring your gift to the altar and there you remember that someone has ought against you, they're offended at you, the Corinthians are offended with Paul. They're not sure what's going on with Paul. Why did you change your plans? They're offended. Now they're listening to false information about why Paul did it, but they're offended. So Paul leaves his gift at the altar. And Jesus says, go and first be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer the gift. Now, some people to take this to mean 
Just leave worship. Don't ever go back to church for a long time. But he says, leave your gift at the altar. Now come back quickly. Agree with your adversary quickly. Secondly, why did Jesus say you remember your brothers offended at the altar? Jewish tradition. To be at the altar was the altar of burnt offerings, and the gift was a sacrifice. And the symbolism of the sacrifice was reconciliation with God. It was pointing to the fact when the Redeemer comes, the ultimate perfect sacrifice, He would reconcile sinners to God once and for all. No more sacrifice is needed. No more sacrifice is allowed. Why? The perfect one has been offered. Now you're there, the Jewish man or the Jewish woman, and they're offering the sacrifice which symbolizes reconciliation and forgiveness, and now there's an an unreconciled situation with a brother. You see the problem. God says, you're after forgiveness this way, vertically. First, seek forgiveness horizontally. Because God ties the two together, doesn't He? You hear people say, well, I know I'm forgiven by God, but I'll never forgive that person. Well, then you're not forgiven according to Jesus, right? For if you don't forgive your brothers their trespasses, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you of your trespasses. What does that mean? It means He won't forgive you. See, vertical forgiveness and treasuring the forgiveness of God works itself out in seeking reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. Seeking it, they may not have it. They may reject it. Paul may be rejected by the church at Corinth. But Paul leaves his gift at the altar. And he tries to get them to understand why he changed his travel plans. Why he didn't come back a second time. As he said he would. That's where he's going with this. Is there someone in your life that has ought against you? And maybe it's all on them. And you have said, so be it. God is telling you this morning, beloved, go seek to clear the relationship. If the relationship is not cleared quickly, according to Jesus, what happens? Bitterness and anger... Pride and the things that get in the way make it much more difficult to be reconciled. Don't wait. Don't let it simmer. Don't let it begin to boil. Agree quickly and then come back together and offer your sacrifice of worship. Third, not only does he clear up his conscience and clear up the uh, the misunderstanding, he wants to clear the relationship... He wants to clear up his words because that's what they are accusing him with falsely saying. So, beginning in verse 15, And in this confidence I was minded to come to you before, that you might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again, which means I I was going to come that second time for the second benefit, and to be brought on my way by you toward Judea. But it changed. Here's what Paul says in verse 17. When I therefore was thus minded, minded purpose means resolved, that's what I intended, that's what I determined to do, did I use likeness? And the rhetorical question means that that's exactly what they're charging Paul with. Likeness means fickle. A fickle person is somebody who speaks out of both sides of their mouths. That's what they charge Paul with. You're saying yes and you're saying no. 
You're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. Now, when a person does that, the idiom means this. A person who frequently changes their mind based on their own interests or their own affections. So they're charging Paul with being a self-centered, self-serving man. It's just all about you and what feels good to you. That's why you keep changing your plans. Did I use likeness or the things that I purpose, resolve, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yes and no? Now notice this. Paul didn't say you shouldn't say yes or no. That's appropriate, isn't it? You can say yes or no, but to say yes and no is to be double-minded. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yes and no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Silvanus and Timotheus, was not yes and no, but in Him was yes. Now here's what Paul is doing. Because God is faithful to His Word, it is uncharacteristic of a Christian not to be faithful to what He says or what she says to keep your commitments. Now that can be a struggle at times and certainly providence can get in the way at any time. You can be sick. There were people that had intended and purposed to be here this morning. Were they being fickle? No. Providence... Brought about in the sovereignty of God, sickness, and they are not here. They didn't keep their commitment, right? That is not fickleness. So the root of likeness, Paul says, is according to the flesh. And we know what that means. He's not talking about the body and the bones. He means that part of you that seeks self-gratification. That is the root of saying yes and no. Have you ever had that friend, or maybe you were that friend, that made plans with you, or you made plans with them to be somewhere on a certain day, like Saturday, to go to a certain place to do a certain thing. And their answer was yes, but it was really yes and no. And then you found out, maybe they didn't even call you and let you know. You found out another friend came with a better offer, and they changed their plans with you because it was in their own interest and affection to go with someone else and not you. That's likeness, that's fickleness, that is not to be the Christian. Probably we've all had that occasion somewhere in our life where we did that, haven't we? All you're doing is waiting for the best offer. James calls that a double-minded man. Let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth, vacillates, is liked, like they're accusing Paul, fickle, is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Is it this friend that's going to give me the best offer? Is it this friend? Yes and no. Let that man think that he shall receive nothing of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The instability of a double-minded man is that he is self-serving. And so his yes and no is based on, will God give me what I want or somebody else? So he's, he's always moving. He can't keep a commitment. Young people, be sure that your yes is a yes, or if it needs to be a no, then the wise thing is to say, no, I can't. That's where we get in problem with our commitment so often is that we can't say no. I, I can be that way. You know, it's like, why didn't I just say no? I really can't do that. You have to call them back and say, I'm sorry, I, I can't make it. That's not what Paul is talking about. They are charging Paul with being fickle 
because he's really so self-serving that if to go to Corinth would, would be in his best interest, he'll do it. But if to go somewhere else, he's going to change his plan because Paul is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. What's Paul doing? He's clearing the conscience, the relationship, and his words and showing them. As a preacher and as a Christian, it would be out of sync with God's character who is faithful to his word for a Christian to never be faithful to their yes and to their no. Yes, there are times when we said yes and we were kept from it. But as a matter of routine practice, Paul says, you know, you understand, I've not been the man that these false teachers are accusing me to be. Well then, Paul, tell us why. Why then did you change your plans? Verse 23. Now this is the other level. Paul is using this chapter at that level. We see now there's tension in the relationship and he seeks to clear it. He wants to make matters clear. Now he unlocks his own heart to show us what he was after and why he changed his plans. Verse 23. Moreover, I call God for a record, a witness upon my soul. It's like he takes it to the highest court. He's bringing God to be a witness to his soul and what he's thinking. That to spare you, I came not as yet to Corinth. I wanted to spare you. Now, Paul understands that the language can be misunderstood. It sort of sounds like Paul is this monarch. He's some kind of lord or king. And like a king, he didn't come because if he did, he would have executed those people or punished them. So what does he do? Not that we have dominion over your faith. He immediately wants to clarify what he means. We are not rulers. We are not your Lord. You have one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are not your Lords. What are you, Paul? We are helpers of your joy because by faith you stand. Paul, why didn't you go? Because through discernment of the Spirit, Paul knew that to go at that time would not have helped their joy. It would have gotten worse. So instead, he takes another route that he thinks will be helping their joy and sends a letter instead. Now, Paul's not saying, well, these people aren't going to be happy, so I'm not going to do my work as an apostle. He says, it will not further and bring about joy. So now the second level. Paul has just opened his heart. We learn things about Paul in this letter. We see nowhere else. Paul said he's a helper of our joy. Well, he's not, he didn't say us, he said them. But if he is the foundation of the church, the apostles and prophets are foundational, then he's a helper of your joy. Would you agree with that? Whatever he wrote as an apostle, whatever the prophets wrote, they wrote to be foundational to the church, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. Therefore, Paul is a helper of your joy. That's why he exists. So what does that mean? We, helpers, co-workers, co-laborers. I don't think he's talking about co-laboring with Corinth. He's talking about co-laboring with Timothy and Sylvanus. He's already mentioned them. We are, present tense. We were at one time. We try to be on occasion. It would be nice if we were. We are, 
present continuous tense. We are always in ministry for this. We are apostles, Paul would say. For this, we are helpers of your joy. Now what that means then, everything Paul does in relation to the church is to give them joy. Everything. When he counsels them, when he writes them, when he rebukes them, when he warns them, when he visits them, when he does not visit them, when he admonishes them, when he encourages them, when he calls them to repentance, he is being a helper of their joy and of yours. That is massive as far as the implications on your life. It's huge. Because if Paul is working for my joy, what should I be doing? Working for the same joy. Do you agree with that? You could say amen here if you want. No problem if you don't feel like it. I'm going to take your silence as amen. I probably shouldn't do that, but that's what I'm going to do. Everything he does, that's why he didn't come. He discerned that it would not help their joy going that route. So, we have to now understand what Paul means because some of you are thinking, boy, that's great. If I had a parent like that, if I had a dad and a mom like that, that everything they did was for my joy, woohoo, man. But you know that's not what he's talking about. So let's define joy. Joy is a deep, calm, delight, and gladness that's durable. Durable means it, it just doesn't wear out. You ever buy something that's not durable? I'm a cheap kind of guy. I just, I, you know, I'll buy tennis shoes from $10, $10 somewhere, you know. <laughs> Two weeks, the sole is coming off. Right now, I've got a big hole in the bottom of my shoe. These were given to me. They didn't last. What do you do? I'm, I, goodwill, throw them in the garbage. Not durable. Joy that Paul is after is not shallow, mindless joy. Please, young people, listen to me. It is not shallow, brainless joy. A TikTok, an Instagram, a Facebook, a game, a movie. What's wrong with that? Nothing, maybe, depending on what you're watching. I download Instagram, I get rid of it. I download Instagram, I get rid of it. I spend too much time on it. I laugh at people getting hurt. I don't know what's wrong with me. (laughs) My kids bring me something, we laugh at it. It's shallow, mindless, comparatively to the joy that Paul is talking about because it doesn't last. And it won't. Listen to Jesus, give us the opposite of a deep abiding joy. In Matthew 13, the parable of the soils, what does he say? The stony ground soil, when the seed is dropped, there's no depth of earth. Translated, shallow. So that's the person, when they hear the word of God, immediately with joy they receive it because there's no depth of earth. By and by, when pressure comes... When the rubber soles of the $10 shoe starts hitting the floor, it falls apart. Two words that express the opposite of durable, calm, delight, and gladness. Immediately, enjoy. Immediately, brainless. 
no thought, no consideration of the cost of Christianity. Jesus said, count the cost, think through this. Immediately. I don't know if they even heard anything except paradise or good things are coming. Joy is shallow because we've already said, Jesus said there's no depth of earth. It's, it's right on the surface. Every shallow, brainless joy will, will depart from you forever. Forever. So it's not about, oh, you can't have any of that joy. It's about, that's not durable. The whole point Jesus is making is that it didn't dure. He uses the word dureth. It didn't stay. It didn't remain. Why? It was so shallow. It was brainless. It wasn't in the soul. It wasn't deep. Now, I don't mean deep like complex and hard to understand. Just deep within. The joy that Paul aims to give is not a joy where everybody feels good every time he talks. He wrote a severe letter to bring about repentance for their joy. So there was a short-term pain that brought a long-term gain and joy. That's the joy that Paul is after. This joy is not rooted in circumstances, right? We know that but we have to be reminded. It is not a circumstantial joy. 2 Corinthians 6, Paul said, sorrowful yet always what? Rejoicing. What's he so sorrowful about? Circumstances, situations, events are sorrowful. At the same time, he has a deep, calm delight and gladness in God. It's rooted in Christ, not your circumstances. So it can endure Right? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I would to God that you would know of the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded or overflowed to the liberality or their generosity. These people are not having joy, circumstantially, are they? Large affliction, which means pain, and deep poverty, which means extreme. The word is used for the depths of the sea in Luke chapter 5. Cast out into the depth of the Sea of Galilee. That's deep, that's poverty. How can you have any joy in that? We know that pain plus poverty equals no joy. Wrong. The overflow of joy led to a transformation called generosity. It's not circumstantial. So don't hear Paul saying, I'm I'm a helper of your joy. I'm trying to make all your circumstances, your bank account, and all your life in this country just great. No. It's rooted in God and in Christ. Philippians 4, 6, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Where are you, Paul? I'm in prison. That's where he is. Now, he is the height of a hypocrite if he's going to tell other people to rejoice and he's not doing it, but he's not doing that. Philippians 2.17. What's going on, Paul? If I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and joy with you. If I'm a drink offering, which was the wine offered at the completion of a sacrifice that meant it was over, dead. 
I'm already being poured out. He knows his death is imminent. He knows Nero is after him. It's going to happen. If that happens, because of your faith, and I'm a helper of your joy, I am glad. Circumstances, prison, I'm dying. Terrible. Joy overflowing. Why? It's not rooted in circumstances, right? You can have this joy. No matter what's happening in your life. Acts chapter 16. He's been beaten. He's been pummeled. He's bleeding. He's thrown into prison. He's locked in chains with Silas. And at midnight, they prayed and sang praises, which means to celebrate. Now let me ask you this. Who has ever gone to a celebration that was intended to be joyless? Nobody. Because Paul wasn't joyless. He's bleeding. He's hurting. But he has joy, which means the joy he has is not like what we think it is. Everybody's happy and everything's going well, and I just got a promotion, I just got a good job, inflation's back on where it needs to be, the borders are closed, uh, taxes are down, the IRS is fired instead of you know, 87,000 people hired. No, no, all that can be a reality, and you be filled with sorrow, yet joy can be yours. Right in the midst. Because it's not circumstantial. It's rooted in God. Now here's the question. I want you to ponder this verse. Put your eyes on the verse if you have a Bible. Why did Paul say we're helpers of your joy and not of faith? He should have said faith. He really should have. The structure of the sentence demands that he says faith. And let me show you why. Not that we have dominion over your faith. We, are, we know by faith you stand. Now, if he doesn't have the rule over the faith, but he knows by faith they stand, which means to continue to keep their position, what does he want to help? Faith. But he's so complex sometimes. He doesn't say what I want him to say. He says joy. Why? Three reasons. The essence of trusting God is joy. See, we think of joy like chocolate sauce, pecans, whipped cream on that bland vanilla ice cream. I mean, I don't even like this stuff without the topping. So as a Christian, it's just vanilla ice cream, you know. We just do it. We're just supposed to come to church. We just do our duty. And if you can have some chocolate sauce, well, that's good. No, Paul says. The essence, the very nature of saving faith is that it's joyful. That's what it is. That's why he uses it interchangeably. That's why he says joy and not faith. We don't have dominion over your faith. We're helpers of your faith, which means we're helpers of your joy. Because it's in essence the same. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, remember? He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. But what I shall choose, I, I, I'm not sure how it's going to go if I, if I do die, which is gain, or I live. But if I do live, it's going to be labor. What kind of labor? Workers, helpers of your joy. Right? To die is gain means, well, if we do depart, that's far better to be with Christ. To die is gain means to be with Christ is superior than staying behind because He's better than the joys that are fleeting. This is where you say amen again, right? Amen. I heard one. Trying to get us out of our shell. Right? 
So if he dies, that's gain, which means it's far better to be with Christ. But if he lives, that means I'm going to keep laboring, I'm going to keep helping. How are you going to do that, Paul? I know that I shall remain for the furtherance and joy of faith. If I live, it'll be to be a helper of your joy. Joy of faith is just connecting them together. Well, Paul, is it joy or is it faith? No, it's, it's joy of faith. To have faith in God and to trust God, this mighty, gracious God, and to see Him, beloved, as He is through Scripture, is to have a deep, durable gladness and delight in who God is for you in Jesus Christ. I do not say it's every moment of our experience. We know that by experience, don't we? Nevertheless, this is Paul's mission and his ministry. Therefore, we should be part of the same mission, right? The essence of trust is joy. That's the first reason he says, help your joy. The second reason is a joyless Christian will not stand long. Oh, this is so important. A joyless Christian will not stand very long. So Paul says, it's because by faith you stand. That's why I'm helping your joy. Because if you lose your joy, your faith is growing cold. It's like a joyless spouse, right? You won't stay in a marriage long. People have stayed a long time in a marriage that had no joy. They didn't stay in it. Right? Heart wasn't there. Well, They stayed, but they didn't stay. Friends, God's not after just your body. He's after your soul. See, a joyless spouse doesn't give honor to spouse. And if they can't get out of the marriage, they just endure it. There's no chocolate sauce in this marriage. There's no whipped cream here. I just vanilla ice cream. I just do it. That is not Christianity. A joyless Christian will not stand very long. Therefore, you cannot be indifferent to joy. You cannot. Or you won't stand. They are so interconnected. Again, not the happy kind of go lucky joy and and, and all that. We've got to be clear here. You may be very sorrowful right now. You may be racked with pain. You may be in a great trial of affliction. You need this joy to stand. We stand in a right relationship with God by faith. How do we keep that position? The joy of faith. Paul knows that if this Corinthian church turns to these false apostles and their joy goes elsewhere, what's going to happen to faith? They stop standing. You might even check your own experience how that's happened in your life. You meandered, you wandered, you were a joyless Christian. Your commitment to Christ waned. Your commitment to the church waned. And if you had to put your finger on it, you were a joyless person. Maybe things were going well in your life, but you were joyless as it relates to Jesus Christ. Joy is the essence and nature of trusting Christ. A joyless Christian won't stand very long. And the third reason, a joyless Christian doesn't glorify God. See, that's a where. See, if you were thinking, you said, I thought his whole ministry was to bring God glory, but now he's talking about joy for the Christian because they are not at odds. If a Christian is a joyful Christian, how is God being glorified except through the joy, right? God is being seen and magnified and exalted as a God 
who sustains the Christian in great trials, in afflictions, in hardships, because there's joy there. And the joy is made visible, not because you're smiling, because it's transforming you. So that's what we want to finish with. How does this work? How does this give God glory through joy in such a way that we're being transformed? Because that's what Paul is after. Verse 20. For all the promises of God in Him, in Christ, are yes and in Him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Now that's the verse I'm going to end on. Amen is our yes to God's yes in Christ. It's a universal word. It's supposed to be the, the most widely recognized word in all the languages. It's, it's transliterated from Hebrew to Greek and to other languages. I think if you went to Russian and said, how do you say amen in Russian? They would say, amen. <laughs> amen. Universal. Amen. But what it means is, it, when it's at the end of a sermon or in a sermon or at the end of a prayer, you are saying I agree with that, but you're also owning it as your own. For example, if you were at a presidential rally and the, the candidate is the president you want, and he started saying things and you started amening. He said, I'm going to lower your taxes. Amen. Right? I'm going to close the borders if, if this is what you want. Amen. I'm going to reduce your taxes and, and on and on. Amen. You're not just agreeing. What are you saying? That is for me. That is what I want. That is what I'm after. The reason we are so joyless as Christians and the power of God is not unleashed in our lives is because we're not saying amen to the promises of God in Christ. We're not saying, that is for me. We're not appropriating it and bringing it into our lives. We just hear it and read it, but we're not appropriating it or taking it to our own use. That's what Paul is saying. You've got to take the promises in and use them by the power of God and then it brings a calm, delight, and joy because it's in Him, in Christ. It's not only the promises of God, it's in Christ, the person of Christ. How does Paul help a man hooked on pornography for crying out loud? Just going to give him some joy, Paul? How does Paul help a man with addictions? How does Paul help a crumbling marriage? Well, look, you just need to talk better. You need to talk better. You need to communicate. You need to communicate. No! He's a helper of their joy. The reason they're on pornography, the reason they're addicted, the reason the marriage is sour, is they have no joy. That's it. You just mark that down. Turning to all kinds of addictions, looking to satisfy an empty soul, and they can't find it. And they never will, because it's in Him. It's in Him. Moses refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of pornography or, or sin for a season. Now listen, you and I, if you don't think we can be tripped up by that sin, you, you are sadly mistaken. I'm amazed that how much trust people have in their own flesh, in the flesh of their children, their parents, or anybody else. Well, everything's okay. No, it's not. Any person in this room can be taken down that pathway. Right? How did Moses just say, well, I'll just eat the vanilla ice cream. You know, i just choose it. Not a big deal. You know, all that treasure, all that pleasure, 
all that enjoyment that the Egyptians are having, I say, it's not for me. No. Choosing rather to suffer with the people of God, affliction than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater treasure than all the wealth of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He had a lot of chocolate sauce. It was permeating the ice cream. He found joy in the Messiah that gave him the power to overcome the pleasures of wealth and sin for a season. And it would have been pleasure short term. Paul, how do you help people overcome addiction? The power of joy in a crucified Savior who is the sovereign, the potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the gracious one, the lover of your soul. He gave His life for you. He is on your side. He is with you. He never forsakes you. He's the wrath absorber. He's your Savior. He's your friend. He's your guide. He's your confidant. Does anybody have any joy? That is the power to overcome addiction. Say no to it. Because just no won't work. That's the power of a broken marriage. Paul says, in all the ways I counsel, it's helpers of your joy. But then it's the promises. Promises. We have to appropriate not only Christ, but the promises. Paul told Timothy, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold on eternal life. What's that going to do for you, Timothy? Help you against the love of money? Which some have coveted after? Is that a problem? Is that a power? Is that a struggle? Sure it is. (laughs) Sure it is. The love of money is the root of all evil, while some have coveted after, have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Timothy, you fight the good fight of faith. What's that, Paul? Joy. The power of joy in the crucified Savior through the promises of what God will be for you helps you overcome. Fight it. We are still sinners through and through. We're fighting. Fight the good fight of faith. You understand, beloved, the reason we have the Fight of Faith Conference is not to give some young people a little fun before they go back to school. You understand that, right? You understand I don't sleep here for three nights just so people can come play volleyball. We are helpers of their joy because by faith they stand. That's why you sisters do all the food, I'm assuming. We have to appropriate the promises. We have to make them our own. We have to take them in. Meet the conditions by grace that God is saying we need. We have to look to Christ and say, yes, I need you. Yes, you're for me. Yes, that's what I need and what I want. Your strength and power. And we take the promises and Christ is appropriated. And that will lift our spirits. It will lift our spirits. We'll have joy. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see it again. How that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and deep poverty abounded unto their liberality. Now what's a promise they could have hung on? Man, we don't have any money. We're at the bottom of the pockets. We're at the bottom of the budget. And Paul wants us to give. Here's a promise. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and He will give you what you need. How about that one? How about this one? Our God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory. That's the context of money, Philippians chapter 4. See, we appropriate the promises of God. It lifts our spirit, and then out of the abundance of that joy, we give. We empty our pockets or whatever the promise demands of us. There's a condition to a promise. And grace meets the condition to empower us. Then we're unleashed to be a radical, God-centered people that bring God glory through our joy because joy opens our hands. 
Joy keeps us going. Joy breaks addiction. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. I wish I could ask the man what he meant, but I think I know. How does he break the power of forgiven sin? By the joy of a crucified Savior. How do we have this power? Paul, you're trying to help our joy. How do we get it? You appropriate the promises. You know them. You understand them. You ask God to make them true on your behalf. You want them. You say, that's for me. I need that God. I need you, God. And the Holy Spirit comes in. And He gives you joy and peace in believing. Did you catch that? Joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. It's through believing and appropriating and saying amen to the promises of God that we fight addiction. We fight brokenness. We we fight against all the pleasures of sin that are so easily taken in, aren't they? See, Paul understands the fight, the good fight of faith is a fight of something superior. Beloved, is Jesus superior than the pleasures of sin for a short while? He's the bread of life. You don't hunger and you don't thirst spiritually when you believe and come to Him. Have you come to Christ? He said... Now you are sorrowful in John 16. He's going away, but you'll see me again and you'll rejoice. And my joy no man will take from you. Every shallow, mindless, genuine, good joy will be stripped from you forever. Some man, something, and death itself is going to take it away from you. And all you'll have to go into the presence of God is joy of the crucified Savior or bitterness because you left all your joys behind, right? A contentment because we brought nothing into this world, we'll take nothing out. Therefore, having food and raiment, let us be content. A satisfied, joyful soul goes into the presence of God as gain. And so let us today leave this place appropriating the promises of God Because we need them, beloved. We need a Savior, don't we? I mean, as I'm saying all this, I'm like, simultaneously my brain saying, I need this, Lord. I need this desperately. I need you. I need this joy. I need you to sustain me. I need you to uphold me. So what do we do? We go to the promises and appropriate Christ, the treasure, and appropriate the promises of all the many ways God said, this is what I've done. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I am doing that'll give you a peace and a joy that can only come through God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us. We want to have the power of the Holy Spirit unleashed in this church in ways that it's never seen. We know the challenge ahead of us. We know the flesh in us seeks self-gratification every day. We've learned that it's empty and we cannot fill it. It cannot be filled. It cannot be satisfied. Lord, you are the only way The joy of the Lord is our strength. Give us the strength, Lord. We say yes and amen to your promises that are free. They are by grace. They are through Christ alone, by faith alone. May this faith that we have be a joyful faith. May we strive to have it. We know that we don't have it all the time, Lord, and we confess it. We need the power of your Holy Spirit. Give us this joy on a more consistent basis that we may stand By faith, we stand already right before you. May we continue by faith to trust you 
and to see and understand that Paul is a helper of our joy. May we be that to one another. In Jesus' name, amen.